Welcome to episode 83, Making Sense of the Pandemic, Psychological Impact on Clients and Communities, featuring Dr. Baruch Fischhoff by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by somebody very important in today's um, situation, I guess, and in, in what's happening in the world. Um, today we're going to be talking about the coronavirus pandemic and specifically pandemics and how the um, community at large responds to them psychologically and how we can both support the health of ourselves and of our clients in responding to this changing environment. Um, today we have Dr. Baruch Bischoff with us and he is a university professor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, he has a number of specializations in public health and in the area of pandemics. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Baruch. We are honored to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to have such a unique and now pertinent specialization? Oh, okay. Well, thanks. Uh, so I grew up in Detroit. I did a degree in math and uh, at Wayne State University. And then I, my wife and I moved to Israel thinking that we were going to live on a kibbutz for the rest of our life. And uh, uh she, being the sensible one in our family, decided it wasn't a great idea. So we moved to Jerusalem, and I had the unusual, uh, kind of remarkable opportunity to study with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who were my dissertation advisors. Some some people may know uh, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And then, uh, then we moved to Eugene, Oregon. For we lived for 13 years. Where I worked with Paul Slovic and Sarah Lichtenstein, just as the field of judgment and decision making was taking off. And uh, most people in the field ended up in business schools. And Paul, Sarah, and I ended up working on public sector problems. And then I've I've been at Carnegie Mellon for 30 some years, and I'm in I'm like to work at the intersection where we have to understand the science of a problem before understanding the the people who in order to understand the reality that people are facing when they order to make need to make decisions about it so i've had the opportunity to work on a very wide variety of problems uh, health safety environment nuclear power sexual assault uh, uh, breast cancer and in the pandemic area i've been part of of research on sars um uh, H5N1 or avian flu and, and, and Ebola. And in all of these situations, the, um, and sometimes we're the same people facing these, these varied decisions. Uh, we build up some knowledge about each specific area, but in the end, it's, you know, it's, we're the same people trying to live our lives. So anyways, I've been working on a large variety of these things. I, uh, I've, uh, you know, I guess had some professional success. I'm a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine, although I'm not a medical doctor. And, um, and I'm happy to be able to help here. This is, uh, you know, that's, 
you know, the public supports our work. If this is a chance to give back, I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much. So you have a doctorate in psychology and a very unique perspective then coming at this, as you said, kind of the intersection, the confluence of these different ideas. Why don't you start by telling us, number one, what is a pandemic? Um, and how, how did we get here as we're talking about specifically coronavirus, but pandemics in general? Well, there's an official definition of pandemics that is held by various bureaucratic organizations and have their own somewhat obscure and somewhat changing rules for de for deciding when to call something a pandemic. It's actually one of those places where the official communications end up commu uh, confusing people. And like uh, or recently we've had uh, emergency declarations by different states and you would think that this is a great cause for alarm, but I think in all cases it has just been a bureaucratic decision that releases funds that wouldn't be available otherwise. And you wouldn't know that if you, unless you read the fall, small print of the, of the, uh, of their, uh, of their press press release. Uh, in more, in simpler terms, pandemic is a disease that's getting out of control and is spreading through the, spreading through the population. Um, and when we're thinking of a pandemic. Of course, all of us are, as you said, experiencing this ourselves and then also watching it in our immediate communities in different states and looking at different countries. And we in the United States were watching what was happening across various oceans and then wondering when it was going to get here. Um, what's some of the background surrounding the psychology of pandemics, if you will? Like, how do people respond to this kind of unusual state of living? Yeah. Well, we haven't ever had anything like this in the lifetime of you know of people alive today, unless they've been in you know they've been exposed to Ebola or happened to be one of the epicent near the epicenter of the swine flu pandemic. So most people haven't had this kind of experience in terms of being directly threatened or being told that it's coming your coming your way. So. It's a, sometimes viscerally a different experience than we than we've had before, and uh, intellectually, it's something that, uh, in some ways, it's it's like any new problem that shows up, and people need to, um, you know, try to make sense out of it. And when they try to make sense out of it, they can turn to some authorities to try to get a clear picture and. In this case, that's been missing. If you look to political leaders, we've had conflicting uh, 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 opinions. Or, or you can turn to the news media, which I think have provided a, a vital role here in trying to figure out what's on people's minds, uh, how to get it to them in in terms that they can that they can un, un, understand, and I think that that's actually typically been the case in various crises. That these sort of crises are are predictable. That is, we've had you know the pandemic, you know, pandemics are almost pandemics that I've mentioned before, and each time there's a call for better preparation of our health of our health services and our mental health services. Each time there's a call for prepared communication so we get 
tested messages out to people. And uh, and over the last 20 years in, in the United States, we've had we've had less and less preparation. We've had less and less, fewer and fewer resources have gone to the public health uh, system. So we end up being, um, I think, inappropriately caught flat-footed. And I think that part of what people are sensing is that uh, that we as a society, for whatever political or economic or bureaucratic reasons, are not as prepared as we should be in ways that have left everybody uh, everybody vulnerable. Um, I think you hit on an important point there, which is the struggles with infrastructure that at the point that something happens, then there's this sense of panic and chaos because we're not confident in the systems as they exist. I, I know even in my areas, like, well, which school is closing? And, you know, when is it going to happen next? A kind of this domino effect instead of a unified response that would have been, um, would have been instituted had there been more infrastructure. Um, when we're looking to get advice as consumers and as professionals about what's going on, to, like who, who do we listen to? Who do we believe? What resources do you feel, based on your experience and your education, are the most reliable? If somebody asks me, I recommend, uh, you know, find you know, a very small number of responsible print media. People will know which ones they they trust. Uh, your local health department, which has all the information from the national uh, health department from in, from the national sources, can tailor it to the local uh, environment and is probably less subject to uh, political uh, forces. And uh, and I would recommend not watching very much TV or only watching TV in order to see what it tells you about the players. That in, in terms of information about a pandemic, it doesn't change very quickly. Like if you checked your print sources a few times, you know, once a day, you'd probably know about all you needed to know. We, I have colleagues at uh, 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 Roxanne Cohen-Silver, Allison Holman, Dana Garfin, and at uh, at UC Irvine, who have been studying the effects of how people respond to stressful events and have found that two of the best predictors uh, or the two best predictors are uh, how vulnerable they are in their own lives, either just where they are in their lives or what previous stresses they have had in general. And the second best predictor is how much TV they watch. And their explanation is that the expertise of people in TV, that how they make their living, is in grabbing our emotions and keeping us through the next commercial break. And having those informations being played for an extended period of time takes a toll. Sometimes you see images or hear things that you would that are difficult to forget, don't do you any good, and you just as soon have not heard them. And then TV is a very, you know, occasionally has some, you know, very good uh, explanations. And uh, they do have some gifted communicators on technical information, but it's a very slow way of gathering information. If you can read a little, that's, uh, you know, that's good. So that's what I would do in terms of getting information. And I would shut off social media 
as a source of information, but stay in social media in terms of, you know, seeing how people are feeling, helping them to helping them to cope with this, but not to believe anything that doesn't that hasn't somehow been vetted by a scientific source. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that guidance and the idea that these things don't move that quickly. And certainly I've seen in the community people um, voraciously consuming information that by and large doesn't change that fast. Um, and so there's this inundation with data and information coming at us that can seem all consuming. Um, I think what you brought up about the not just the vulnerability, but how much TV somebody is watching is a really good point. And for us as practitioners to even ask clients that, you know, how much how much are you reading about this and how are the other parts of your life progressing outside of the pandemic? Um, when it comes to consuming this information, for those people who are particularly vulnerable right now and are watching more TV, what are some common responses that they might experience in terms of their feelings and their behaviors? I mean, what, one of the things to, in our lives, we're accustomed to making decisions under conditions of uncertainty and to taking risks because that's just, you know, that's just part of life, but we would rather not. So there is a desire to <laughs> to find some certainty both about the world and some certainty about ourselves. What, what trade-offs do we really want to make? And at some point in like probing the world and probing yourselves, you reach a point of diminishing returns. That is, you, you're not making any progress. You're just going around in, in, in circles. And at that point, if you can, it's worth saying, well, I've gotten as far as I'm going to, going to get, and I'm going to make some kind of decision. And, and I'm going to accept the reality that I maybe be surprised by the world. Things may go in unexpected ways. And I may be surprised by myself. That is, I may be, I may respond to things in ways that I didn't. That is, I may, you know, discover that I'm braver than I thought, or I may discover that I've gotten myself into something that I thought I could handle, but is really, uh, is really beyond me. What One of the things, there's there are two judgmental biases that, uh, uh, or decision-making biases that people in our field have studied. So one is called outcome bias, and it entails judging the quality of a decision by how it turns out, rather than by the quality of the thinking that went into it. So if you've done the best you could, and things turn badly, don't add the insult of regret to the injury of whatever happened. You know, sometimes good decisions, you meet bad luck. Sometimes the best decision is actually making the best of a bad situation. So, you know, kind of be kinder to yourself if you've done everything you, everything you could. Um, and the second one is hindsight bias, which is that once something has happened, it's easy to, to exaggerate how predictable it was. And you think, oh, I should have known that had I gone there, there would be somebody who was shedding virus in which, you know, that person was there unexpectedly. And you had done all of, 
you've done your due diligence about anticipating the situation, then it somehow turned out uh, turned out differently. So, you know, if you can sort of remember where you, you know, where you were and what you did when you made the decision, that you can protect yourself against uh, being too hard on yourself. I appreciate that feedback. I've seen what I would consider um, a struggle with control of how out of control pretty much all of us feel of not knowing if if and when we might get it, how it's going to affect us. Of course, there's been huge economic impact that's going to be longstanding. Um, and that I would imagine then some of the things we're seeing in society and communities where we're um, standing in line for hours to buy excessive amounts of toilet paper, for example, that that's, that's one of our ways, I would assume then, of trying to get control when things feel out of control. Arguably, the, the right emotion is, is uh, anger at the people who've put you in this situation. That is, why, you know, why are we as a country so unprepared now and you know unprepared both in the short terms and you know we're we're this is middle this is the middle of march when we're when we're recording this we had two months even longer to prepare for uh, for this and the country is unprepared now and in a longer sense a longer time frame uh, our country has been unprepared for this kind of uh, event which Everybody, all the scientists, all the public officials knew that this was going to happen. We were, you know, we were lucky that that SARS and avian flu and swine flu and Ebola were uh, were were either the the virus was kind to us and it turned out to be more contro controllable and to some extent, you know, and we had really valiant uh, public health officials and healthcare people who were able to get on, on top of it uh, with hard work and, and personal risk. So it's no surprise that this is, you know, this has happened and yet we've had a steady decline in our investment in, in public health. And we've also had a steady decline in our investment in the the social capabilities of, of providing for people who are more vulnerable. So, you know, this country, there are an awful lot of kids who get their primary nutrition at school. And I see, you know, really, you know, valiant, dedicated people improvising ways of getting food to those kids now. And we have, you know, we have a lot of people, we have people who are vulnerable in various ways. We arguably don't do well by them under normal circumstances, and we don't have the infrastructure for, for reaching out to, to them. So we'll, you know, there are a lot of volunteer things in effort, efforts going on, and those are, are really laudable. It's not quite the same as having, having uh, built-in services for, protect, for providing for people. You bring up a good point, which is the varying impact of something like this on different groups of people and how that affects those who are not as privileged in socioeconomic status um, or have vulnerabilities um, when it comes to a medical condition or, or by age. What do the um, 
the lesser affected, if you will, the, the less vulnerable people do to support the greater good when we have, particularly for coronavirus, for COVID-19, for example, older people, people that tend to be more vulnerable and individuals with some kind of immunosuppression. How do the rest of us help protect everybody? Part of the current program in the United States and, and, and other countries is for people to since withdraw from social, uh, social interactions, either to protect themselves, but in, in more cases, actually, to, you know, to some extent, really just to protect others, because there are people, according to the best current evidence, most people who get the virus, you know, will have you know, relatively mild, relatively mild effects, but they, during the time that they're, uh, you know, that they're potentially shedding, they're a risk to everybody else. So in some sense we're protecting ourselves, but also absorbing a social responsibility for protecting others. So following those guidelines, even though they, I think they're unintuitive to, you know, to many people, that it's unintuitive how a, a pandemic can grow exponentially. I mean, this is, there's been research you know, for many years showing that we're just not very good at intuitively running the numbers on exponential processes. So if somebody has run the numbers for you uh, and it's been through peer review and they're properly diplomat, I would trust their trust their numbers. And at the time that we're talking, it's still not clear how transmissible people who are asymptomatic in the, in the incubation period or people who are actually sick but are asymptomatic you know how much of a threat they are to uh, to uh, other people so it's just you feel pretty good you may be a threat to other people so i think following the public health advice is something that each of us can do beyond that uh you know there are in every community organizations that know how to you know who know where the people with challenges are who provide them services some of those are are they're nonprofits, they're faith-based organizations, there's uh, neighborhood groups, and, um, you know, I, th I would say reach out to them. They will have an idea about what kind of services are needed, and some of those services can be provided by people who really don't want to leave their house, but maybe they need financial services. Maybe they people just need a phone call, somebody who's... You know, somebody who's in a nursing home and able to hear, you know, has hearing is good enough that they can take a phone call, don't have relatives near nearby, and maybe they just need a phone call. So I think talking to the people who know those communities would give people uh, an opportunity to help others, which I think the research shows that usually <laughs> makes us feel better about this. And, you know, there's, you know, there's some chance that as a community, you know, as a society, we will come out, you know, the better for this period. The idea of giving back, I think, certainly, I know I've seen the research too, can increase our feelings of interconnectedness and our feelings of security. Um, tell me more about the idea of panic. 
Um, because I've heard, you know, if, if you're watching TV, if you're listening to the radio, then you're hearing so many different perspectives on this. As you mentioned earlier, it's like some people are saying, oh, this is unnecessary panic. And some are saying, you know, no, we need to be terrified. Um, how do you sort through that from an emotional and psychological perspective? Like what is panic? Where is it coming from? And what are the pros and cons in this particular situation? Well, so, so panic is one of those vague terms that uh, that uh, sort of vague term that leads to lead social scientists to invent jargon. <laughs> so, so it's distinguished what we're talking about from this uh, this uh, vague term. And one way to think about it is is so some of the one of the meaning is just feeling panicky. And, you know, there's some people, again, as clinical psychologists who know from whom this is really an intense part of their life and they, they try to help them. Most of us feel panicky at one moment, you know, or, or you know, or, or another. And, uh, and it usually doesn't lead anywhere. We get through the situation or worst comes to worst and then we deal with the, deal with the consequences. So that's feeling panicky. It's, you know, it's just part. It's just part of part of life. I think that the the kind of panic that that some people have in mind is people losing their um, sort of losing their grip or and and abandoning other people, violating uh, social norms. And and that for this this is something that sociologists study because it's a group phenomenon rather than an individual phenomenon. It just turns out to be very rare. I have a colleague uh, Kathleen Tierney at the University of Colorado who argues that uh, there are probably literally more panics over any period of time in the movies than there are in in the world. And one of the one of the examples. Uh, I, the first place I went, first meeting I went to after uh, after nine eleven was the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society. Uh, I met somebody there who was an expert in egress, that is how people get out of buildings. And he said that the preliminary calculations were that that the egress from the World Trade Center had exceeded the theoretical limits. And the way they model egress is as a fluid dynamic process. That is, they view people as a fluid following through it, flowing through a confined space. How quickly people flow depends on how viscous they are, in a sense, how smoothly they, they go through. And in uh, maybe I'm pushing this metaphor a little far, but but uh, but in his interpretation, that people under those extreme circumstances, you know, people were unusually helpful with for one another, and more people got out of the building than was theoretically expected, despite some of them helping disabled people along the you know first responders you know climbing to their climbing to their death and then after that uh, you know we have, have people have the image of people running in the streets you know, b below in order to get away and again that was 
a very organized, heroic under the circumstances uh, e evacuation that again saved many lives of the people who had gotten out of the, you know, the uh, out of the out of the area. So with, with Kathleen, the sociologists find that panic is very rare, and there's actually a literature in sociology on what they call the myth of panic. So she said, "Well, where does this where does this belief in panic come from?" So, some of it is from a, a kind of a casual analysis of human behavior. So you see people running in the streets, and you say, "Wow, they look panicky," and then you see, and then if you sort of thought about it a little bit more, uh, you would say, "No, actually, they're they're doing just what they should be doing. You know, getting out as quickly as they can." helping one another, not stepping on one another, you know. And and, uh, and then the sociologists, some of them argue that actually the myth of panic, so that's a cognitive reason for believing in it. It looks, looks appearances are deceiving. The second one is, is that this is a, this is a useful myth for people who would like to control the public. So you say, you know, people will panic. Um, they really need our strong hand to guide them. The idea of, of the myth of panic, it sounds like really what you're summing up is the fact that panic is not actually necessarily a bad thing, that, um, that we could interpret it to be negative in different ways. And if we're interpreting it as a mechanism of control, for example, but in the example of the World Trade Centers, it was actually this pretty prudent and helpful response by one human being to the next that produced better outcomes. And as I apply this to what's happening right now with COVID-19, we see people that really are very, very low risk that are quote unquote panicking, you know, whatever that term means. And so they're, they're stockpiling different things and, and hoarding um, bottles of water. Um, but I can also see that the benefit of that quote unquote panic may be that they are then following other recommendations like social distancing that's going to create more safety for others. I mean, at, at the time that we're talking, uh, uh, <laughs> hoarding of toilet paper is is a popular popular uh, topic, and and like any human behavior, there are a lot of things going on, and it means different things for different different people. I think the way that a I don't know, decision scientists or risk analysts might look at it would be to say, yeah, coronavirus was not a big deal, and all of a sudden it's become a big deal. And uh, and people are told you should be prepared for, you know, being locked in your in homes for two weeks or four months or 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 whatever, and you have a a responsibility for having stocks to to stock up, and you go to the store, and they don't have the food that you like. There's some other food that you can get, but there are no substitutes for toilet paper. And so everybody wants that. And because of the failure of planning in this country, the supply chain for toilet paper is, you know, the stores are not ready for that demand. You know, so one could have no, you know, one knew two months ago that this was like likely enough to happen that you could have asked the 
toilet paper industry to ramp up production, to store things. It's expensive storage because it's very bulky, but they have, the, as I understand it, the toilet paper industry, most of it is, is made in the United States. They have relatively limited surge capacity, but they probably could have been in a position that they could have made the pre, the present surge. So that was a failure of planning. And then there's also, I would say, a failure of communication. Imagine that, I don't know what the facts are here, but imagine that, you know, two or three weeks, we'll have enough toilet paper. And if that is the case, or one week, or whatever whatever it is, why isn't somebody telling the public that so that they can know how to plan? And and I think that the 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 um, the sense of insecurity that people that people have is fostered by the lack of planning in the country, the lack of clear messages, the lack of communications that address people's basic concerns, you know, all of which, you know, were, they're predictable. Sometimes there are very few surprises here in terms of what we needed to do to plan, you know, our resources our or our communications, and, and we haven't done it. When you mentioned communications, tell us more about that. Um, tell us about kind of the pandemic effect on basic human communication and, and also on relationships. But how do we work with the fact that we are getting mixed messages? You mentioned some positive and reliable resources. Um, but from kind of a psychological perspective, how do we make sense of that? Well, it would be in, it will be interesting in the future for somebody to reconstruct how it is that some people were more prepared than others. Had everybody been un as unprepared at this time, we would have been in much worse shape. And my reading is that one s signal came from, I think, technologically savvy organizations or uh, firms or, or, or uh, scientific institutions that had begun planning, that had seen the signal, and had begun planning for their own purposes. And at some point, you know, people who were associated with, you know, you know name your leading tech firm, I don't know, you know, all of whom started to shut things down and made contingency plans quite a long time ago. I know that my university, Carnegie Mellon, started planning um, in January thinking that this that that it had a responsibility to our community to make plans and you know to if, if only as an insurance policy to make plans and seeing where this uh, where this developed we have a community uh, they knew about it there were nice good communications from our our management <laughs> and that got out to some set of people and I, I suspect that we're as prepared as we are has been this informal mobilization by saying well here's somebody who's not trying to spin anything they're not trying to sell anything they're just working the problem for people like myself i guess they know something i'm gonna stick with them i would give my my university credit and i'm sure this is true other places that from the very beginning they have had very inclusive messages so we have a fair number of foreign students particularly from from china 
you know, it was apparent early on and, you know, early as January that some of them were experiencing ethnic discrimination. And so all of the communications had, uh, you know, uh, expressions of solidarity that the institution was committed to all of the members of its of its 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 community which i think valuable to the people who were being being included and and gave you know gave other people language you know and a frame of reference that they could carry on in their lives and then there's kind of informal dissemination for how people thought about this uh, situation in terms of the dissemination of information and then the reaction to it one of the things that I've seen that's been interesting, and so, you know, as you're stating, kind of a, a lack of cohesive direction from the powers that be. So it, it's kind of reminded me of who's on first or the um, Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, you know, going both directions at once. And this conflict that I assume has contributed to the chaos, to the sense of of, of panic, if you will, to use that word again, um, but the, the sense of discontent and, oh my goodness, what are we going to do about it? So now that we're here, you know, that, that it has descended upon us, so to speak, and now it's spreading, um, what do we do as individuals and as communities to respond to this in a way that's prudent and effective? Yeah. Well, I, one perspective I think is is could be it will be helpful for some people is is to think of this as as a as a limited period. It may be three months. It may be six months. Our society will emerge on the other side of this, and you know each of us will look at our own behavior and hope that we had responded appropriately and we will look at other people's behavior and and see how they have responded and also that we're doing things now unusual things now for a limited period we're being asked now not to touch our faces so you couldn't touch your face for the rest of your life but you could for 15 minutes between going to the store and coming and and coming home seeing your family by FaceTime rather than in in purpose. It would be a real change in your life if that was the rest of your life, but this is a period. So I think that's a useful perspective. A second is I, I've seen, you know, I've seen people, I've talked to people who have you know, taken this as an opportunity for creative solutions that is to say well what you know how can i make this um an interesting period so i was talking to my uh to my son-in-law who's a uh, professor of uh, computer engineering and was teaching a makerspace class this term and that's getting people together looking at designing computer chips and so on it's very intimate uh, activity you couldn't really do that even if his university was still still open and that class is pivoting to to doing well imagine we had this product how would we do the marketing how would we do the user testing how would we you know, so we'll do something, you know, we'll do something else within, you know, within, within this. Or people are trying to figure out how to organize courses that are online and, you know, test out this new tech, this new technology. We've got six or eight weeks of the, of, of the term. So, you know, treating this as a, you know, uh, kind of a unique experience 
I, I think that people often, when we have a decision, we say, well, how do we, we look at a decision as having two fixed alternatives? Like, do I go to the gym or not? You know, in each of these situations, you could think about, well, is there some creative way of changing the terms of, of this decision so that I can make it, you know, I can make it self-enhancing and, and uh, you know, just a part of this general general experience. So being creative that way, you know, redefining what our, tip, our typical alternatives might be something that people can people can do in some of these situations. I can hear what you're saying in a few different um, therapy methods. So one of them is narrative psychology and the idea of being mindful of the words we're using to describe the phenomenon. I read a news story just the other day that used the term um, indefinite when describing the uh, changes to the American way of living. And it was just such a, a strong and brusque term. And in my mind, I remember counteracting it and kind of going, well, temporary, like, yes, this is going to have a long standing impact. But in terms of our day to day living, this is, a, I, I hope, a temporary situation that is going to go back to some se some relative sense of normalcy. Um, so I can hear kind of the narrative benefit in what you're saying. And also to view it um, I like that idea of a unique experience, you know, basically, well, at least I'm going to get a good story out of this. And, um, and obviously, that's not for the people that have been profoundly affected and, and are very, very ill, um, and have such poor outcomes. But for those of us, the majority of us who are healthy, and are going to come out of this healthy, to be very mindful, I think, um, to kind of um, interpret what you're saying, be mindful of the black and white thinking and not make it forever. You know, we'll live in this pandemic-based world forever, but that this is something that has uh, some kind of time-limited component to it. But I think that, yeah, I think that that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So we're all, we're all looking to one another to figure out what to do, but also what does this, all this mean? And, uh, you know, if you've got a good idea or a good way to think about it, a good set of terms, um, I think that's, uh, people will find meaning, obviously find meaning in, in, in different ways, but uh, these kind of discussions about mutually supportive ways of doing it. I think sharing things that people find, useful you know places where they've able to they've been able to help you know people that that are particularly vulnerable where they've really never had the time before they have a little more time now never really thought about it that much you know thought that well there's organizations or agencies that uh, that deal with it but maybe I'm gonna let's see what I can do this time brings them in contact with other parts of the communities that they might not have known. And for the worrying, you reach that point of diminishing returns fairly soon. So you might as well, you know, fill up that time, try to fill up that time with something else. You know, uh, if you're older, great time to maybe to uh, organize those family photos, create albums that you can shape with other, you can share with other people or, or whatever, you know, each of us will find, you know, sh could be looking for things like that. 
I like that you're giving us some practical suggestions because when I'm thinking of this and talking with clients about it, you know, that idea that while they're experiencing this phenomenon, we are also experiencing it simultaneously. And so we're sharing this human experience and you're giving us some practical ideas, like here are some things that people can do. So not only how do we approach it um, as providers, as clinicians, but how do we support clients in limiting their uh, consumption of news and of television that's related to any pandemic, but in this case, specifically talking about COVID-19, um, how do we work with them in therapy? So addressing the black and white thinking, trying to work on a temporary basis instead of a permanent basis. I think these are really practical concepts that are helpful. I know for me and helpful for our listeners, because so many of us feel kind of powerless. It just feels like this wave that we've gotten hit with. And while we're on that topic, kind of a powerlessness, what are the typical psychological responses to something like this? Like, how long do we stay in, oh my God, you know, zone? And how long does it take us? Or just what are the general stages of responding to such a, a big life change that is likely temporary, but nonetheless? So I'm a cognitive psychologist. So what we think about is how do people understand things? And one term that we think think about uh, one way that we organize some parts of the research are um, what what are people's mental models of what's going on and I suspect that in some places you know you all do something similar so for example the example I gave earlier of how TV works on you you know so the results that, uh, that my, my colleagues found they had a good psychological explanation you know they're flooding your channels working your emotions not giving you very much information that would help to explain why the experience works and might strengthen your resolve to resist that temptation. Or another thing that we know from the research is that people are very good uh, at making sense of anything that they hear. So you hear a crazy you know, conspiracy theory from a source you completely don't trust, and you think, well, you, you start to figure out how that might be true. And you may be resolved not to follow that line of thought, but then once it's in your mind, it may be it may be churning there, and you'll find, you know, I, you hear a scrap of evidence, you say, you know, I heard a theory that that fits with, just because that's the way the mind naturally works in terms of its sense-making properties, you really owe it to yourself not to listen, because you just can't shut it out once, once it started. Um, Something else is that, you know, that people gradually figure things out. Part of it is through observation. Part of it is that the news media or the therapists or their friends, somehow the better information filters to most most people. So we, we did a, a survey of a nationally representative group towards the end of Ebola and we found that people, so Ebola was some, had some of the same properties of, of coronavirus in terms of the risk management. It was, you know, it was underrated. It was, there were people who 
denied its reality. The first couple of cases were badly handled. The people who talked about them wasn't clear that they were uh, leveling with the audience. So there was a strong element of distrust that got into the system. But within a you know moderate period of time, people had figured it out well enough that we you know we you know they had we ask we tend to ask people to give us very precise answers to questions like is what you think what is the probability that if you spent a day in the office with somebody who had ebola but was asymptomatic that you would catch it because the answers like that were able to compare with the best statistical estimates and see how accurate people are and we can also compare answers to related questions in order to see whether people have internally co consistent beliefs and can use the numbers that we want to get from them. So that's part of our our expertise. And we found that, you know, by the time we, you know, sort of two months into it, people gave us very, you know, consistent estimates, mostly defensible. We even asked people, probably a number that maybe your your listeners will have uh, heard. We asked them for R naught, which is the basic reproductive number. So it's like for every person who gets a disease, how many people will get it from them? And so if it's less than one, then the disease is vanishing. If it's more than one, then it grows at an exponential, exponential rate. And people gave to this very unusual question, uh, which was not in the news media at all. It's much more in the news media now. People gave us very realistic answers. So people will begin to figure it out. They'll get some feeling for what the magnitudes are. They'll have a mental model that figures out. They'll have a, more of a feeling of cognitive uh, control. They'll know who to tr have some feeling about who to trust and who not to trust. And so th and they'll find patterns that will become new habits so people will adapt not everybody you know as you know again as you all know there's some people who are particularly vulnerable and and uh you know you know that their lives you know psychologically are in turmoil and, and other people whose lives and you know just the day-to-day -day living, making ends meet, uh, getting thing, food, getting food on the table, feeding their kids, whose lives will be disrupted, and and uh, we owe it to them to uh, you know to help them. But people will will sort of figure out what's going on, and it may be something that they can't cope with. I'm really glad that you brought brought that up. I think that is very interesting and important information for us to have, particularly as mental health professionals. This idea that people are in, you know, panic mode, if you will, they're panicky about what's happening. But you're saying, based on the research, by and large, people are going to figure it out. They're going to adjust to a new normal. They're going to figure out how this is actually working, how it's affecting them, who they can listen to, who they can't, and they'll, they will respond. And when I'm thinking about even like the, the crisis models of mental health treatment, when we're looking at kind of the timeline of how long it takes us to respond to a major life change, change whether it's stress or eustress, um, that we're looking at usually anywhere from six to 12 weeks. And it sounds like in your 
um, your survey that you were doing, you were looking at the two month mark. Um, so I can I can hear the kind of overlap that's happening there. Um, so when it comes to the the practical side, not just uh, not just the practical part of therapy and counseling with individuals, and obviously working with ourselves on our own fears about what's happening. What are practical steps we can take and encourage in our clients to keep ourselves safe and to keep others safe and healthy? Well, I think sort of going through the things that we've talked about, I say limiting yourself to a small number of trustworthy uh, print sources for information uh, and being very disciplined about ignoring the rest unless you want to find out who who those people are, but even even so, I would I would be disciplined that that will you know that will avoid you being misled. It'll reduce the chances of people working your uh, uh, emotions, and will also give you a feeling that well, you've really done all you could in, in trying to figure this out. And some limited time each day you'll devote to checking in on the virus and the rest of the time you'll try to figure out how to uh you know how to find meaning for yourself in this period how to help others how to reach out for help um you know recognizing that everybody else is under stress you know including your therapist and we and we uh you know we're in this together and then I think we again, as I said earlier, I think we will all be judging ourselves and one another in terms of how well we did in this situation, given our material and psychological psychological resources. When it comes to not just the emotional side of things, just to reiterate for our listeners, for the folks who may not have consumed as much news as some of us have, um, what are the things that we need to be doing physically? So, I mean, I know sitting in my office right now, we've installed hand sanitizer stations. We, um, I know we had a conversation even today in my suite about whether or not we were going to see clients in person or we're going to see folks through video and teletherapy. What are some of those really practical behavior choices that we as human beings can be making and also encouraging in our clients? It's a small number of things that you can find in in many different many different places. The tricky thing is to figure out how you take these general principles and fit them into ambiguous situations. Like, you know, your presence is important to your clients, and you're you're important to your clients' uh, presence. I there, there probably is research on you know telehealth, uh, telemedicine, uh, on how well that works. It would be interesting to know what that is. If it turns out that you have some clients whom you they really need that, then I think the kind of creative problem solving that you had, you know, that you were discussing, or consulting with a number of people who will see different perspectives, might have have creative solutions. That's probably the the best way to go go about it because the the people who offered the general advice. Uh, they don't know everybody's uh, everybody's reality. So, you know, we're all limited in the perspectives that we can take. So consulting with people in related situations, you know, might help you to either to figure out what to do or to figure out how to how to frame it, how to think about it in a way that it felt not exactly where you want to do it, but there's a, you know, constructive way to think about it. 
I think you bring up something really important there, which is how do we interpret this information then and actually apply it? And it sounds like you're reaching more for kind of a social model, which is, you know, if you're having trouble interpreting it, then reach out to your peers and get feedback. I've certainly seen a, quite a bit of that in our field on social media, of people reaching out to one another and saying, hey, here's what we're doing in our office. What are you doing? And then at the end of the day, going back to one of your earlier points, we can't necessarily, you know, we can't uh, gauge our response uh, based on the outcome. We can only gauge it based on the information that we use to make a decision. Um, because I think all of us, I think there's this kind of phenomenon of paralysis right now. Of like, well, what do I do? You know, do do I go to the grocery store? Do I uh, tell my clients that I'm only going to see them online? Um, and which clients? Is it just the ones that have a, a an issue with their immune system or are older and how do we make these decisions i think there certainly is this desire to get all of that information from someone you know where yeah. i almost feel like a school child wanting to look at a teacher that's going to say okay now do this and it's like okay good <laughs> now i know the right answer yeah. um, because it, it's this time of uncertainty that that we're not um we're not particularly well equipped with contending with right now. And I like your suggestion, which is reach out to other people and seek feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So I would did go back to something we were talking about, uh, talking about earlier. So, you know, if you've got the best information that you can individually and collectively, you've been as creative as you can about having, having solutions, uh, you make a decision figuring that you've done the best you can and then Try to be easier on yourself and move on to other things. And then maybe have a little bit of anger at the people who left you in the situation. I mean, who are the people who, you know, did not plan for this situation? Who are the people who didn't answer your questions, even though they could have? Like, what is the supply chain for toilet paper? You also bring up then the importance of a pretty fundamental therapy component, which is simply normalizing feelings, um, that people are going to go through a series of different emotions in response to this, one of them potentially being anger of how did we find ourselves in the situation, and for us as mental health professionals to provide, I think, containment and normalization of that experience, not not necessarily try to combat it with data or anything else, but to 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 go back to our basics, which is meeting people where they're at. Yeah. So is it okay to be angry if you've been wronged? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> Indeed, it is, and and I also think it's okay to be scared. Um, and I'm I'm even thinking of different people in my life and different responses to it. I had a friend reach out to me and say, hey, how are you responding to this? And I, for one, have a background in working in crisis management in the Red Cross. And so for me, I'm actually used to this. I'm quite calm. Um, but it's interesting to consider just how different personalities are playing out. And I think that's one of the concerns as mental health professionals. You know, how do we respond to different personality types with our clients when we're looking at a specific population that has obvious vulnerability? More than likely, if they're in therapy, if they're in treatment, they have a mental health disorder or a substance use disorder. They may um, also have certain personality traits that make them particularly vulnerable, vulnerable like a sensory processing sensitivity. Um, so I think taking all of those things into consideration, um, I, I appreciate what you're saying, which is kind of go back to basics and, and be with each other as human beings and start there. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, we, we follow Fred Rogers here, look for the helpers and, and I guess be one of the helpers. Thank you, um, Baruch. I really appreciate everything that you said today. I could certainly keep talking with you on this topic. Um, so for people that are listening, what are some resources that you recommend for them? Um, how can they get in touch with you if they'd like to? I'm sure you're quite a hot commodity right now. And thank you for your time with us. But please, please give us resources and how to be in touch with you. You've, you have my name. I'm at Carnegie Mellon. If you look at my website, there's a bunch of publications. Some are technical, some are less technical. If you wanted to read something about our science, we have a little book called Risk, a very short introduction that pretty much covers the, the science. It's uh, from this wonderful series that Oxford has, a very short introduction. And it's it's inexpensive. They're written for a general uh, audience. It'll give you an introduction to our science. And uh, I make very little from it, so I'm not in it for the money. And uh, um, you know, and I wish everybody the you know the best. I you know we my my wife works in in social services and is much more. I think of her as our delegate to the real world and. Uh, and uh, it's in touch with lots of people doing very creative, humane things in the Pittsburgh uh, Pittsburgh area. And I'm, I'm confident that this is happening all around the country. So all power to those people who are doing that. Thank you, Baruch. So the best way to reach you then just be look you up at Carnegie Mellon. Um, thank you so much for your time, for the expertise that you've shared with us. Um, as I said, I think you've given us some really practical takeaways that I know for me are very helpful and I'm sure are for our listeners. So thank you again for taking time out to talk with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, and you all are really very important in this situation. So I'm glad if I helped you with, you with, with your work. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.